This morning we're studying Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, Several years ago, I I went with three friends to an NBA game, and we went and saw the Oklahoma City Thunder play at home against the San Antonio Spurs. And it was a really special night, and it was special because of our friend Rusty. Uh, You see, our friend Rusty worked for the Thunder organization, and his job was to sell season ticket packages to people who could afford those things. And uh, the Thunder, in order to woo those people, those buyers, reserved four courtside seats to every home game. And so they would bring potential buyers in, let them experience the game from courtside, and then uh, talk about season ticket purchases. And so from time to time, those tickets went unclaimed, and Rusty called up one day and said, hey, we've got tickets to this game if you guys want to come. And so the answer, of course, was yes. We went down to Oklahoma City, and when we got there with our tickets that had uh, there was four numbers to the left of the decimal point. It was insane. And they gave us a special bracelet. They gave us access, access to where the special people sat. And our, our seats were not normal stadium seats. They were big, padded, comfy chairs. Uh, we had our own waitress at our seats. Prior to the game, we had access to a buffet full of food and beverage in this special little nook of the arena. Then at halftime, we went back for buffet number two, because uh, who can have just one? And so uh, the, the experience was incredible. We're, we're seated right next to the Spurs bench. We're so close. I could have put deodorant on Tim Duncan if he had asked me to do that. We're just that close. And did we deserve those seats? Not at all. (laughs) Did we earn those seats? No, we certainly didn't own them. Did we fit in with the other clientele? No, we did not. We were country come to town. Uh, It was Oklahoma City, so it was country come to (laughs) other country. That's what it was. Um, But all of that was because of Rusty. He, He was the conduit through which we got access to Uh, Us low-deserving people got access to all these incredible things. Now, in perhaps the worst analogy in the history of preaching, Jesus is the super rusty. (laughs) I know. Don't leave, please. Don't go. Just wait. It's through Christ that we low, undeserving, unmerited, unfitting people have access to the riches of glory. He's the conduit through which all of this goes. And uh, this morning, we're going to see Jesus in such a potent light. He changes everything. With the arrival of the king, our traditional ideas get turned upside down. Who's in and who's out? Who's righteous and who's not? What's pure and what's impure? Through Christ, all of these things are refocused. They are brought into clearer vision. And so our story today in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, it shows us Jesus surrounded by unsavory characters. There's unsavory, irreligious people, and there are unsavory, religious people. Everywhere Jesus looks, there's unsavory characters around him. But in particular, he sits at a table with these people 
who are outcasts of society, but to whom he has extended forgiveness, an invitation to sit and eat with him. As a result, he's engaged in conflict once again, just like we studied last week. Engaged in conflict with the religious professionals, scribes and Pharisees, who recoil at what Jesus is doing. Now, there's no shortage of reasons as to why that this story ought to resonate with us, why it ought to be important to us. I think it's especially important for the church on the whole to mirror Jesus in his treatment of people. If we get this wrong, we go the way of the Pharisee. If we get it right, we'll go the way of Jesus. There's not a lot of middle ground between those two paths. It's going to be one way or the other. And so I feel if we study this passage right, then today we're going to find ourselves numbered among those reclining at the table with Jesus, and then we'll pattern our lives and our church after Jesus' radical love for the lost. Through Jesus, everything changes. And this story highlights for us two particular changes that Jesus brings. I want you to read with me in Mark chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 13. Mark writes, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This story has really messed with me because it's familiar and I know it, and, but the more time I've spent with it, uh, the more uh, it's really pressed on me personally. And so here's how we're going to approach it this morning. I want to share with you two big changes that Jesus brings. In this scene, there's two major shifts And then, uh, once we've nailed those down, I want us to talk very pointedly about a place where we might apply the lessons of this passage. All right? So, if you're taking notes this morning, Jesus brings two changes. What's the first change? The first change is this. Jesus makes disciples of the despised. Verses 13 through 15, Jesus makes disciples of the despised. Uh, Mark is such a great storyteller. We're seeing that week after week in his gospel. He always gives us geographical markers, and he does the same in this story. Jesus is still in Capernaum, or around Capernaum. That's where he was in our passage uh, last week at the beginning of chapter 2. And so he's left the house in Capernaum, and now he's out walking around the lake, by the lake. Remember that Capernaum is a seaside fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is walking along the lake, and as we've come to expect, he's being followed by crowds. Jesus doesn't go anywhere anonymously. The crowds are following him, and what is Jesus doing with the crowd? Look at the end of verse 13. It says, he began to teach them. 
So again, just like in our passage last week, Jesus is not setting up shop to do miracles. His primary task is preaching about the kingdom of God. And so in the house in Capernaum last week, he's teaching when all the events unfold. And then again this morning here by the Sea of Galilee, he's again teaching the crowds. Well, as Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee, he sees a man named Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth. Who was Levi? Well, that is actually a surprisingly long conversation and and one we might have at another point in time. But the traditional conclusion, and conclusion I agree with, is that Levi is Matthew, the writer of the first book of the New Testament. I'm I'm going to refer to him as Levi this morning because that's how he's referred to in our story. Now, Levi is sitting at a tax collector's booth, but he's not a tax collector of the normal variety. He's sort of a customs official, and these customs officials are placed at strategic places of traffic, uh, like bridges, canals, state roads, ports, and there they, 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 they take tax from people for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of their own pockets. You see, people in these positions, people like Levi, were Jewish. And they were especially despised by their Jewish uh, peers. They were considered traitors against Israel because not only did they do work with Gentile people, they worked for Gentile people. That was nasty business. You didn't do that. In fact, they're taking money from their own people to give to their Roman oppressors. They're working for the enemy. They're keeping the empire afloat. They are benefiting Caesar. And in doing so, they become complete and total outcasts. Men like Levi are lumped into the same social strata as murderers and thieves. They're not welcomed in the temple. They're not allowed to worship with God's people. They can't testify in court. They are liars. They are the lowest of the low. Not just people who are unlikable or a bit cranky, they are truly despised, seen as traitors against their people and also traitors against God himself. And the way Levi got his job in the first place is pretty gross as well. Levi and people like him would bid for that job. They would tell the powers that be, I can get you this much money out of my people. And the highest bidder would get the job. The way Levi got paid was purely by commission or extortion. He would charge above the Roman rate in order to fill his own pockets. Men like Levi were not poor. They were not without. They had plenty of money and they were taking it from innocent, impoverished people who lived inside the empire of Rome. Now, if Levi were a tax collector around Capernaum, then fish were absolutely one of the items that he would have taxed. And in that case, he would have already likely been well-known and well-despised by Simon and Andrew and James and John, Jesus' first four disciples who were all fishermen. And it's almost certain that Levi already knew who Jesus was because of his spreading reputation. I don't think there's any strangers in this story. I think when Jesus walks up to Levi, it's not the first time that Levi has heard about Jesus or seen Jesus. I think they know each other surprisingly well. Now, for this story to hold weight with us, we have to imagine someone in our mind 
who is comparable to Levi. Now, it's hard for us to do it because we don't have all the same customs and and the same understandings of, of what men like Levi were like. So I'll give you the descriptors, and then you've got to do the work to think in your mind, who is this person or this type of person that is comparable? So this is a person who's a traitor against their own nation, a person who makes money through immoral means, a person who has rejected faith, a person who is widely condemned and hated, and it's not up for debate. They're a horrible person. You've got to get that name, get that person, that category in your head to understand how shocking this scene is. So Jesus walks up to Levi, and he pulls up his belt, and he puffs out his chest, and he says, how could you do this? Just look at yourself. Stealing money from God's people. You snake. How dare you? Right? That's what Jesus says to Levi. And that's what you would expect him to say. To get puffed up, challenge him to a fight, curse him, condemn him. But instead, Jesus walks up and says to Levi, follow me. And Levi immediately gets up, leaves his work behind, and follows Jesus. Now, I think the words follow me, I think that's an accurate transcript on Mark's part. I don't think he cuts out the details just for the sake of saving space. I think with what Levi knew of Jesus and what Jesus knew of Levi, it didn't require a lot of convincing. Follow me was enough to do the trick. So Levi leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. How incredible is it? Jesus doesn't call a priest. He doesn't call a synagogue leader. He doesn't call a political leader. He doesn't call a military hero. He calls an absolute scoundrel to be his disciple. And believe it or not, that's good news for all of us because we are a sanctuary of scoundrels. Now, you may not think your sin is all that bad. We've talked about this often, even just last week. But why don't you take one of the nicer disciples compared to a Levi disciple? How about Simon Peter, for instance? You see, Simon Peter's plucked out of a fishing boat, not something nasty like a tax collector's booth. But Peter's going to go on to try and stop the crucifixion, and he'll deny Jesus three times, and he'll try and tell God Almighty what foods he can and cannot eat, and he'll be a racist punk to Gentiles and get called out by Paul. He's a scoundrel. You come from a fishing booth or a fishing boat or a tax collector's booth, you're a scoundrel. And that's fitting for all of us. We ought to find ourselves under the banner of Levi. What is it that makes you that type of scoundrel? You've made mistakes. You're well acquainted with sin. Well, maybe you need to hear this morning and be encouraged this morning by the truth that Jesus makes disciples out of the despised. It's easy to define ourselves by our failures. And you might have people in your life who remind you on a regular basis of your failures. I remember a few years ago at our previous church, uh, a woman who was a longtime member uh, had her out-of-state daughter visiting on that Sunday. And the woman brought her daughter to introduce her to me, her adult daughter. And she said, Cody, I want you to meet my heathen daughter. I'd be a heathen too if that's the example my Christian mother set. 
You might have people that throw it in your face all the time. And so we might assume then that Jesus would think about us the same way, especially if we're put down by other people, even Christian people. But Jesus sees in Levi something nobody else can. He sees the difference that grace and love make in a human heart. He knows what a difference it makes when people leave behind their sin and instead walk in the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't need anyone else to give a character reference or to sign off on Levi or on you. He just knows the power of grace and you need to be reminded of that this morning. Jesus doesn't reserve his invitations to discipleship for the most accomplished. He extends the call to those who will say yes, those who will follow him with everything they have, and you might be that one. So if you are investigating the claims of Christ and the person of Christ, You've got to understand this from the very beginning. The start of your relationship with Christ is not with you fixing yourself in order to be worthy of Him. He'll do that fixing. You are already loved and valued and cannot be loved any more than you are right now. All you have to do is say yes to His invitation. And it's the same to you as it was to Levi. Follow me. Jesus makes disciples out of the despised. Let me show you one other profound change that Jesus brings. It's highlighted in this story. The second change Jesus brings is Jesus turns the sick into saints. He turns, he makes disciples out of the despised and he turns the sick into saints in verses 15 through 17. Now, Levi gets up, he follows Jesus, leaves behind his work and all of that. And then it seems, according to Mark, as if Levi throws a banquet at his house to celebrate his new gig, and I think also to get his friends in orbit around Jesus. And so we're told that many other tax collectors and sinners were at the dinner. Now, the term sinner is an important one to understand. Uh, I don't know that your Bible has any different word there in verse 15. I think it's the same word across Cross translations, but the word sinner here doesn't just mean a, a, a general sense of everyone who does wrong. I mean, the reality is, yes, everyone at this banquet with Jesus was a sinner, generally speaking. But this term is a categorical term. It's a reference to a particular group of people, not just people who are sinners in general, but people who are completely unsavory in their life choices. Uh, an, an exile like Levi is going to be friends with other people like him. He's not going to have his temple friends and then his work friends. He's just going to have one group and they're all together going to be people on the outside of acceptable society. So these are people who are outside the bounds of normalcy. Their life choices have made them unsuitable for public life. Jesus is not eating with people who are merely poor or who are merely downtrodden. He's eating with people who are intentional, willful, immoral sinners. The word outcast would be better applied here to create this category or help us understand this group of people. They are wicked and notoriously sinful. So we should think carefully about who the outcasts are among us the outsiders, the forgotten people. I think it's right on the one hand to think about application in terms of Christians 
intersecting their lives with the lives of people who are notorious in their sin, so to speak. But I think also we can take a broader approach as well to understand that Jesus sets an example for us to follow that we would eat with, live with, intersect our lives with people who are on the outside looking in, those who are forgotten, those who are left out. There would be people who struggle with addiction. It would be welcoming into our midst warmly people who battle mental health issues. It would be making space intentionally and frequently for people with special needs. Yeah, I'm so proud of what's happening in our recess ministry here at the church. If you're not familiar with it, recess is, uh, it, it provides respite care for kids with special needs. Uh, once a month on a Saturday afternoon, this place is covered up in precious children and the hardest working volunteers you've ever been around. And uh, what you'll not see around here are moms and dads because they're off either napping somewhere or enjoying quiet or going to the store on their own or getting a move, whatever. Whatever they want to do, they're gone to do that for several hours. I love that ministry. I love what we're doing. It's a reflection of Christ's kind of love for the people at this table. That's not to say that our children are notorious sinners, simply to say they are on the outside. Those families are often forgotten. But there's more that can be said about the people Jesus eats with here, more than just they are sinners, more than just they are outcasts. I want you to look at the end of verse 15. Look at what Mark says. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. There were many who followed him. Jesus is making for himself a new people. And these people at this table are not defined by the lives they left behind, but by the forgiveness that was theirs when they followed Jesus. So Jesus is sending a serious message in this scene. The kingdom of God is not for the self-righteous. The kingdom of God is for those who hear the call of Jesus and answer with a resounding yes. And as you can imagine, this is not ignored by the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious professionals who oppose Jesus. Look at verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees uh, saw, excuse me, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so these snakes, they, they don't address Jesus directly. Remember last week, they, did, they just thought the negative things about Jesus, and Jesus addressed that. And now in this story, they don't go to Jesus directly. They go to his disciples, and they start to stir up some of this mess. It's difficult to overstate the Pharisees' disgust at Jesus' company. These sinners are seen as inferior by the Pharisees, because they don't keep to the traditions. It seems that they don't care about holiness. In the Pharisee mind, sin was contagious. And so any self-respecting teacher would know that you're not supposed to eat with these types of people. If you recline at the table with these people, you're affirming them. You're saying something about their value before God, their place in the kingdom. 
And so Pharisees would keep strict separation between themselves and anyone else whom they deemed unworthy so as not to be infected by their sin. I never understood what a serious matter this was and really still is until several years ago, Melissa and I were able to take a trip to Israel. And we were in this uh, one restaurant one day, and there were two buffets in two sitting areas. A lot of buffets in my sermon today. It's a good sermon. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, one buffet and seating area was for non-kosher people. And the other buffet and seating area were for kosher people. And we knew, and we're just fine, we're going to sit in the non-kosher area because we are fans of all things pork, among other things. So we're going to sit here. But some innocent, unknowing American tourist woman wandered into the kosher area with her non-kosher tray. And that place went to DEFCON 1 immediately Yelling, chairs scraping the floor. It, it, was, it was a rapid response from the people in attendance that day. It's that times a thousand here with the Pharisees and the people Jesus is eating with. They would never be found eating with people like these sinners. So Jesus picks up on their protest and he answers with a proverb. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. There's a couple of ways we might make sense of this from Jesus. What does he mean when he says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners? Does he mean that the Pharisees are righteous and Jesus is going to turn his attention to sinners instead, non-Pharisee type people? No, that's not what it means because guess what? The Pharisees are not righteous. They are self-righteous, but by their rejection of Jesus, they are anything but righteous. So that's not what Jesus means. We might say, well, maybe Jesus means to say, uh, in his irony, I haven't come for the righteous, meaning he is rejecting outright the Pharisees and all the people like them. He's flipping over the power structures. He's not here for the 1%. He's here for the 99%. And so he condemns Pharisees, and he's all in on poor, impoverished, downtrodden people. But again, that's just not consistent with Jesus' message in life. Because there are Pharisees who respond and follow Jesus. Men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and Saul of Tarsus. So when Jesus says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's telling us that the kingdom of God is not for people who are self-righteous like the scribes and Pharisees, but for outcasts who know they need to be made whole. Every person who sees in themselves their brokenness and their sin and their need for a Savior, those are the ones who are part of the kingdom of God who find forgiveness in a seat at the table. Such an incredible scene. Levi has called everyone together for a celebration meal, but it's way more than just a celebration meal. It's a grace meal. No one at that table is there by merit None of them would have been picked by any of us to be at that banquet. But God in his grace through Christ calls these sinners to himself. It's a practice meal. What I mean by that is this seems to be a precursor to another feast described in Revelation chapter 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where in eternity at this great banquet, 
the bride and the groom eat together in this beautiful scene of the redeemed and the redeemer. It's also a holiness meal. The Pharisees operate as if sin is contagious, but Jesus acts as if his holiness is contagious. Jesus takes these sinners and he turns them into saints. Now let's wrestle for a moment with the implications of this story for the church. We've talked about it a bit in terms of how it might apply to our lives. A call to follow Christ. A move away from self-righteousness. What are the implications of this tiny scene on the way the church thinks about ministry and sinners and righteousness? What is required of us? Well, uh, this passage and others like it are often cited as examples of the radical inclusion of Jesus and his affirmation of people from all walks of life, all choices of life. I think it is true that Jesus was, Jesus is radically inclusive. This is true. But it's important to note that Jesus does not affirm Levi's sinful life, nor anyone else's for that matter. Jesus told Levi, follow me. When Levi took up the mantle of discipleship, he took on the ethics of Jesus, the life of Jesus. He's not permitted to be a follower of Jesus and a fleecer of men. He has to leave one life behind in order to pursue this other life. And so I see some instructions here for the church when it comes to loving those who are outside the faith who might belong to the category outcast, notorious sinners. First, the church should be liberal with love because that's how Jesus was. The idea that the church should target people as objects for hate or vitriol or exclusion is anti-Christ. Second, we call people to leave sin and follow Jesus. Love does not affirm sin for any reason, for any person. And love does not excuse that which would destroy a person. Love is not without boundaries. The idea that the church should embrace sin and celebrate it in our midst is likewise anti-Christ. So let's apply this to a hot-button issue. Let's talk about this as it might apply to the way we love and care for people who are dealing with transgender issues. Now, my interest in this is not to give an answer to the mainstreaming of transgenderism. My focus is just on the person in front of you. How does this story inform your response and your treatment of this person in front of you who either struggles with this issue, is all in on this issue, or just advocates for this issue? Uh, A book that might be helpful in this regard is by a man named Andrew Walker. And the name of the book is God and the Transgender Debate. It is a winsome book. It is a gracious book. It is a helpful book. And so if we're going to talk about this, how does this meal impact my response to this person? We've got to start by defining a couple of terms. First of all, biological sex. It seems like a no-brainer, but biological sex is the sex you are born with. You are male. You are female. Gender identity is another term that's important. Gender identity in our current cultural discussion 
does not necessarily have to align with your sexual biology. Gender identity is uh, the, the sex you identify with. The Bible teaches that sexual, uh, your biological sex and your gender identity should be in alignment, right? Those born as men should identify as men. Those born as women should identify as women. But when a person experiences anguish or turmoil or conflict or confusion internally about who they are, that's what we would call gender dysphoria. When, you're, you, when you feel like your biological sex does not align with your gender identity, that's gender dysphoria. It's crucial to understand that gender dysphoria is a genuine experience. It is not the invention of the liberal left. It is not the invention of, of people who just want access to opposite-sex opposite bathrooms. It's a very real experience. People with gender dysphoria experience the feeling that their body is lying to them. A person in this situation really thinks that he or she should be or would be better off if they had an opposite gender than their sex or if they had no gender at all. People who experience this type of distress and anguish and conflict Uh, in their perceived gender identity. They're not perverts and they're not freaks. This is an unchosen experience. It's never something anyone should just get over. Like you would tell someone with a big nose, well, just make that nose smaller. It's just not that easy. No two experiences of gender dysphoria are completely alike. These people, though they represent a small portion of our population, Uh, they represent an extraordinary number of people who are affected by self-harm and suicide and all kinds of mental illness and difficulties. So what needs to be constantly reminded to us is that when, when the treatment of these people or the discussion about these people begins, we're dealing with real people. When we engage in heated language or vitriol, or gross generalizations, or slander, we hurt people made in the image of God with that type of speech. So how does this dinner in Mark chapter 2 inform the way we would love the person in front of us who is struggling with gender dysphoria or who is all in themselves uh, living as a transgender person or even a transsexual person? Well, the church has to treat people as people, not as headlines or generalizations. And Christians who follow Jesus, who have received mercy from Jesus, who have been forgiven by Jesus, who are loved by Jesus, are bound by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live in love the very same way. We are liberal with love. Without apology to fundamentalists who can't handle it. But with confidence in the love of Christ that's been given to us. Through his death and his resurrection, we respond with love boldly. And our love towards people who struggle with gender dysphoria is going to include things like friendship and time together and casseroles and dinner tables. And it will include the promise of hope and wholeness in Jesus Christ. You see, they must hear the gospel. 
And they must understand that the Bible is not a hammer that destroys their happiness. It is the path down which hope is found. Jesus teaches us that we intersect our lives with theirs. We give them our lives. We give them his word. We walk them towards the hope and healing of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as we move forward tomorrow and the day after that and the days after that, it's going to be ever more important for us to be clear on the implications of Jesus dining with the despised. The implications are that we should open our lives and open the word so that everyone should hear the gospel. Now, I I recognize this is a, a big issue and it's way too big to tackle in just about the 10 minutes we've done so here. So I invite further conversations and feedback and pushback. We're going to go to the Word together. But I'm set on this. The love of Christ needs no apology, needs no break check. And it requires the presence of the gospel wholeheartedly. What we affirm is that Jesus rescues sinners. And that there is a way of life and hope and light for every scoundrel who comes to Jesus Christ by faith. So Mark has shown us the difference it makes that Jesus is the conduit through which salvation flows. Jesus makes disciples of the despised and he makes saints of the sick. He sets us free and then he gathers us into a group of people who practice love and righteousness in the same way. In the way of Jesus, not in the way of the Pharisees. In the way of a given righteousness, not the way of a self-righteousness. But it's so easy for us to forget how powerful God's grace is. So you might not be a follower of Jesus today because you might be convinced you are unforgivable. You doubt the power of God's grace to forgive you. Or it may be that you're a follower of Jesus and you're utterly convinced of your worthiness. You've removed grace altogether through your self-righteousness. Both of those are impossible ways to live. Jesus wants so much more for you. And so... Brennan Manning, one of my favorite writers, he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he shines some light on our hearts in this matter. And he says the kingdom of God is a kingdom of freedom. Jesus invites and challenges us to enter his kingdom, to walk the royal road of freedom, to be set free by the Father's love. He calls ragamuffins everywhere to freedom from the fear of death, freedom from the fear of life, and freedom from anxiety over our salvation. It is wonderful. Christ bore my sins, took my place, died for me, freed me from fear so I can walk the path of peace. We are saved sinners with tilted halos. Just like Levi and his friends, Jesus extends his invitation to you. Follow him and take your seat at the Feast of the Forgiven. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, that old Pharisee does not come easily out of my heart or anyone else's. But by your grace and your power, Holy Spirit, would you pry that devil out of us. And every time he tries again and again to latch on to us, to tell us we're we're not fit for grace or we're beyond grace. or to cast some other person in some sort of negative light 
Dear God, may we come running to you and rest in the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this kind of salvation. I know that if my salvation was based on my good works, there's not a chance, not a chance for me or anyone else. So we thank you for Christ who laid down his life, who died for us while we were still sinners. Thank you that he came, not for the righteous, but for sinners, to bring healing to all of us who are sick. So this morning, Father God, would you open the eyes, the heart of the one in here that doesn't know you. Let this be the salvation moment. And Father God, would you once again strengthen the heart, the spirit of the brother or sister in here who feels like sin has the upper hand. Let grace lead the way. And Father, give us confidence that we can walk in your way and we can love liberally. And that love requires a telling of the gospel and a call to walk in your way. Thank you that that's how any of us who are saved were saved. And thank you that that's how salvation will take root once again today. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.